This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with J.J. DiGeronimo. She's president of Tech Savvy Women. She's also a speaker and award-winning author and an executive strategist. She focuses on accelerating the careers of women, especially in STEM areas. Her new book is Accelerate Your Impact, and her 2011 book was The Working Woman's GPS. She talks about nurturing the careers of women and how women and men approach careers differently. Talk to me about the education process with women and, and STEM. Uh, what we hear often is that there's a point in a young woman's educational process where they get diverted from traditional STEM courses into other things. Is that correct still? So the research shows that around fourth or fifth grade, women sort of around the time puberty happens, they become more self-conscious. They don't want to look foolish. And so they tend to steer away from math and science. And so many of the research say that keeping girls in STEM and STEM, whether it's math, science, technology, engineering, you know, not only through fourth, fifth, but through into high school is ideal. And you start to see even some private high schools and middle schools even separate out boys and girls so that women can build their self-esteem and confidence in those types of curriculum and then fold them back into mixed-gender classrooms. Help me out, though. Why would being in STEM you know, be, be a challenge? Uh, I guess maybe I'm, I'm looking at it from a male perspective, but why would one be castigated for, for staying in math and science? So it's not so much a challenge per se. It doesn't necessarily have to do with how well girls do in math and science. The brains are equal, so they can do equally as well as men or boys at that point. But it really is more about self-esteem and how society positions females and where they belong in society, where we're girls often get you know, apprehensive to be in math and science. And oftentimes, much of the curriculum and conversation has often steered more towards uh, male than female. And so they often can't find their place. And they, don't again, don't want to feel um, foolish by answering questions or getting things wrong. So oftentimes, they remove themselves from those types of classes so, or after-school but programs. But in elementary school and preschool, that's not a problem. Yeah, girls are not that self-aware then. It really is more when they start to mature and get in that preteen stage where they become much more aware of boys and sort of how they feel um, around the material. And so it's really important that middle school programs and even elementary programs introduce engineering and science projects and curriculum early um, for both girls and boys. And I just actually implemented a STEM program, after-school STEM program at our local 
middle school. And I worked with the organization on rewriting the descriptions of the program so that it was more engaging for both genders. How, how, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And Harvey Mudd has done a really good job of this uh, in their programs on the West Coast is uh, women are really driven towards outcomes. And so they don't necessarily want to build, you know, Superman's telephone booth or a bridge or a fast car. They want to build things that have um, lasting impact. And so finding ways to incorporate science and math into things that could change the world uh, is often more intriguing to young girls. And so we have a curriculum of engineering. And for example, we're going to do uh, bioengineering. And we're going to be talking about DNA and fixing animals with broken limbs and really talking about recreating DNA so that we can help cancer patients. And those types of global impacts seem to draw more girls to the program. Let's assume that a young woman drops out of, of STEM at that middle school age. What are the chances of her coming back to it later in, in life or, or later in her academic career? Or is that terminal when they, when they drop out? You know, I haven't seen too much research on coming back into math and science because, as you know, it gets complicated pretty quickly. In high school, right, and it's 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 one of those subjects that's progressive, uh, unlike a history course where you can learn history at any period. It seems like math and science build one one skill upon another skill upon another skill, and it's progressive. Yeah, it is progressive, but it's interesting is oftentimes you don't even use those skills in the workplace. So what I do see is women that tinker around with the computers or are great at digital media or are interested in something happening in the hospitals and they go back and get a recertification on the equipment maybe in one of the hospitals or they go back and get a uh, they go to one of the boot camps and start learning coding that they don't necessarily need calculus and so getting those um, ad hoc degrees and even um, curriculums later in life, you then see women re-entering into those types of jobs later on. Now, again, let's focus on that middle school age because sure. I, I find this fascinating. My, my daughter teaches uh, art uh, in public schools, and, and for some reason she loves teaching middle school, which uh, I couldn't do, but she loves it, and she's incorporating STEM into her art. I mean, they just built a couple of robots that do art projects, and and she's really integrating that. Does that seem to help with this chasm that you're talking about? That's a great point. And, you know, STEM has, is now expanded in many ways to be STEAM, to include art. And I think any way you can get to students, that you can turn it into more of a collaborative project that uses many diff- different disciplines to get to the goal, often can create opportunities to excite students on uh, material, content, and even, you know, disciplines that they might not discover the traditional way. So I applaud her. That's fantastic. Do young women who continue their their STEM progression and and don't drop out, do they engage in a, another challenge when they get to the universities? Because it seems, being around a university, that those fields are still male-dominant at that point. 
They are often male-dominant, and depending on the university and depending on the professors and uh, the deans, women can either feel very inclusive in the program or very much of an outcast. And there's been plenty of research around uh, women and men in these disciplines um, that feel that there are different levels of acceptance based on gender. So you went through this process personally before you now advise people. Give us a little snapshot of your progression, Mm -hmm. how you went through it, some of the challenges you faced uh, academically, and then we'll get professionally in a bit, but Yes. As I look back on my career, I I had self-efficacy, which I didn't even really know what self-efficacy was up to a few years ago. And self-efficacy is having a vision of where you want to go and believing you can achieve it. And NCWIT, the National Center for Women in Technology, along with IEEE, have done many studies of why women stay and why women leave. IEEE is? is uh, it's an international organization for electrical engineering that has now emerged to all engineering. Uh, and they have done many studies of why people stay and why people leave. And they map oftentimes self-efficacy to why people stay, that they can overlook some of the hurdles and obstacles that many people experience because their vision is so broad that they are more interested in reaching that vision than they are on the everyday activities that might be happening at the university level or even professionally. Now, do you think that that was inherent in you? Did you learn that through other life lessons, or was this something that you learned academically? So self-efficacy is actually learned, and it's generally learned when people take risks. So when people take risks, uh, they generally are jumping before they're ready, but they prove to themselves over and over again that they can achieve even when they're not 100% ready. And the research shows that men generally take are comfortable changing jobs or changing directions at 60 to 70% of being prepared, where women often wait to 100%. And so when you wait so long all the time to change jobs or change degrees or do something new, you lose the opportunity to build your self-efficacy. And so that's some of the things I've been talking to women about is how do you create opportunities to build your self-efficacy so that you can sustain your desired path and not be discouraged by some of the subliminal and unconscious biases that may be happening in the universities, in the high schools, and even in the professional world. So see where you want to go and and then keep your eye on that and, and the process of getting there is easier. Not easy, but easier. It is easier. And there's a book called The Confidence Code that talks a lot about how men and women perceive risk and how they go about risk. And I think that I have seen this. I've talked to thousands and thousands of women across the country. And uh, I think many of them will agree that they are they're waiting to cross every T and dot every I before they apply, before they stretch, because they don't want to let people down and they want to be sure they can do the work. So they miss out on the opportunity to build self-efficacy, which is something that I learned from a very early age. When a woman gets into the STEM job market, does she have those same tendencies that she 
to move forward or to move up or to look for a promotion or look for another job? You know, from early age, they have different opportunities in life, and the media plays a big deal in how women and men feel about themselves in different situations. And so not this is not a blanket statement necessarily, but is definitely a hurdle that women are often waiting. I talk to many executives posting jobs that often tell me we did not have any women apply. And when HP did a fantastic study, they put up some internal jobs, and they assessed all the people that applied, and they actually created the study that gave me the statistics I shared earlier about six, men generally mm-hmm. apply at 60%, women at 100%. And so this is based on uh, true uh, data that's happening in the workplace. And I think women don't even recognize it. And I think that's one of the beauties of the work that I do is bringing this awareness to the forefront so they can maybe take on some new ways about going about their college degree and even their career because we need the diversity to create the products that the customers consume. You spent some time in Silicon Valley in in your progression of careers. What was it like there for a woman? I mean, we we read, we hear stories. uh, Rarely do we actually talk to somebody who was there. I really thought it was fantastic. I mean, I have seen firsthand many of the things that are discussed in the media today. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be under some great bosses. Some I had some excellent sponsors, and uh, I really had some overall, I had a great career trajectory. But now after I've spent several years researching and building content for my books and going around and speaking, things that I might have been neglected to recognize because I was so focused on the goal, I now see through other people's stories. And I find that we do need to stick together, we need to share, and we need to empower one another as women. But as men, we also need to learn how men and women show up differently in the workplace because our daughters are going to be in this workplace, our nieces, our godchildren. And the environment right now often really sort of sways more to benefiting the male gender. And I think society as a whole has seen benefits not only on boards, but uh, there's been many studies of the benefit of having uh, diversity at the table. Well, you sort of anticipated one of my questions, and that is, is there anything that you see that's going to break this this, this chain, uh, change the environment? It seems like we've had this uh, paucity of women in in STEM jobs for years and years. Yeah, you know, what's going to change it? Well, it's interesting. I have a friend by the name of Jeffrey Tobis that's down out of Atlanta, and he used to be the diversity director for the Coca Cola, and he wrote a book, Why Women. And you know, he talks about eighty percent of consumer purchases are done by women. That the baby boomer. Uh, is retiring and that we're not going to have enough workforce to support the demand and drive of of our uh, corporate America and our products and services. And so we have to be more strategic on how we recruit, retain, and advance talent in our organizations to meet our business goals. And so I think uh, several items um, are going to impact and sway us to be more open to different cultures at different levels in the organization. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. 
The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. What prompted you to write a book? Initially, my first book I wrote for my daughter because my first book call is called The Working Woman's GPS, When the Plan to Have It All Leads You Astray. And at that time, I had a global job. I had a team. I was traveling, and I had two young kids under four. And I <laughs> Wow. I thought, <laughs> Did you, know, you sleep ever? Not often. <laughs> and I wish I would have partied more when I was younger because I can do a lot in little sleep. But what I found was that I thought this have it all was a bunch of nonsense. And I felt that it wasn't fair if I kept playing into the story that, oh, yes, you can have it all because you really can't have it all at one time. And most women that had, you know, sort of my everyday experience had a lot of help at home. They ha- and they had a spouse and they have people that are, are maybe grandparents and in-laws that were helping them make it work because it is very difficult to have two working parents and both of them hitting on all cylinders and trying to have young kids. I think that as much as we want women to excel in the workplace, the reality is most of the women are also, you know, handling all the logistics back home or at least a big portion of it. And I felt that it wasn't fair if I didn't share that with my own daughter and her friends because, in my opinion, something has to change for women in that perspective because they're not going to want to continue to go up in the organization and make a big difference when they have a full-time job at home, too. What was the response to your to your book? I, mean, I, I can see some people saying, well, that's heresy. That's heresy to the, the whole feminist movement. My wife happens to agree with you 100 oh. percent, by the way. But, but uh, I'm sure you got some pushback. Yes, and of course, you know, I'm not encouraging or suggesting that someone should try to live my life. I was just trying to manage the life that I put together based on what society told me I could have. And I felt like I, you know, I got the degree, I had the house, I had the kids, I had the great job, but it was very difficult to juggle. And I think it's unfair for anyone to think that this is so, that this is logical for anybody. And I think that we as a family structure almost have to adjust the base of where we all begin every day to really support more women in executive positions because something has to give for sure. But it did start a platform of a discussion that I hadn't heard before, which is how do you make it work? What do we agree to? What do we align to? And how do we stay whole through the whole process? Because I know many women want to make a difference bigger than themselves, bigger than their families. But I think we have to be more honest of um, how difficult it is so that we can support one another and we can share the ups and the downs through the process and not pretend everything's so rosy and bright. I look at 2017, and from my perspective, as a person much older than you, I think we ought to be further than what we are in equality in the workplace. And I don't see it even 
today. We certainly don't have equality in salaries. We don't have equality in expectations. How do you deal with that as a, as a younger woman who, who's looking at, at the workplace? So I've been in tech, high tech, for over two decades. And I would say that the first decade, I was even unaware that all this was happening. I was so focused on getting my job done and getting the recognition and moving along in my career. Uh, I agree. I agree with you. I'm surprised just everything that's happening in the world today, how much hatred and inequality that exists. And there is an abundance of there's abundance of resources for everybody. I'm not sure why everyone is holding so tight onto the purse strings of I have this, you have that. Uh, but I do think that there is opportunity ahead as this becomes more mainstream, these discussions, because I think that people, you know, knowledge is power, and I think that the more people share and the more people that speak up for equal rights, the more things will start to shift. And I'm hopeful for my children when they approach the workforce. And I know many, many, many men contact me when their daughters are about to approach the workforce. And I said, the best thing you can do is sponsor women in your organization. Stand up for women. Uh, encourage them to pos- uh, position for new opportunities in your organization. Bring them at the table when they're not invited. When you sponsor women in the organization, you're sponsoring opportunities for your children. And you think that will translate to future generations? I think there's enough momentum right now happening in mainstream America that change is on the way. I think the fact that companies are sharing their salaries, that women are writing books and they're suing their employers and, um, you know, that all of these things are happening, that change will happen. It has to happen. You can't just put all this out there and just forget it. It's in the minds of the of the people now. You're in the process of writing another book or just finished? I just finished my second book. And... Uh, it's been a fantastic journey in the sense that when I went out and talked to women about the first book, uh, they said, this is all great, super helpful, but now I need to know how to find a sponsor, how to get promoted, how do I get a business idea off the ground, how do I network? The mechanics. Right, the mechanics of creating the professional path that they desired. And so that really was the basis for my second book, Accelerate Your Impact, Action-Based Strategies to Pave Your Professional Path. And it's just won its fifth recognition uh, nationally as a book for women in corporate America, and it's even won the Diversity Book Award of 2017. So it's not uh, not limited to STEM, even though part of our discussion has been this is more women in the workplace generally. Well, it, the content benefits really men and women, but because I run an organization called Tech Savvy Women and because I've been in tech, a lot of the stories are STEM-based because that's my viewpoint, but the content and the outcomes and the action-based strategies, professionals can benefit from it in any stage of their career. Let's go to what you do now, which is working with women in their careers. And you made a, a statement in an article I, I wrote that said, if they quoted you accurately, it said, women and men approach careers differently. Men tend to be more direct and metric-based, and women tend to generalize. Now, we've talked a little bit about how women wait a little longer than men, but this seems to be a different uh, sentiment. What, What do you mean by that? So there was a research study that was highlighted, uh, I believe it was in Fortune, 
a few years ago that talked about the different ways women represent themselves in resumes. And it took um, the same job for man and woman and basically showed the difference between the resumes. And in the research study, it talked about how women generally uh, talked about collaboration, teamwork. They summarized the work at hand where men... um, and not, and not only did women summarize, they used three times more words and less bullet points that were action-oriented or metric-based. And men are much more uh, brief, and they definitely drive home the value of their work. So did they enhance the operations, increase the revenue, enhance the brand of the organization? And they're very metrics. And so I often talk to women, and I'm going to do it again here on campus, is – Let's be clear that you have to be able to champion yourself for other people to champion you. And if you are unsure of where you made your impact or you're not very good at describing the work at hand and, more importantly, the outcomes, it's very difficult for other people to sponsor you for new opportunities, promotions, or even awards. Do you think that that uh – goes beyond just STEM jobs? That's oh. that's women in the workplace generally? It is generally. And I have a lot of women call me and when I often ask them, well, what do you do? Where have you made your impact? They don't want to brag. They don't want to sound like, you know, they don't want their ego to drive the discussion. And so they often summarize and I hear it over and over again. And when I say it's okay, and in fact, you should. And this has become even more uh, prevalent with LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is such a great tool right, for professionals right. to highlight uh, their accomplishments. And so it's very important that they get comfortable sharing how they impact, which is probably half the reason we don't have women on boards is because we don't – women aren't very good at really expressing their overall impact in organizations. And so when they're deciding who should they put in – an executive position or who should we add to the board, it's difficult um, to size up the different genders for the same opportunity. But that's strange. Every time I've looked for someone to hire and I look at LinkedIn, uh, if I'm looking at a male LinkedIn page, I'm going, okay, that's puffery, that's puffery. (laughs) This I, I can tell the words this person used. They're not quite on point, so that must be an exaggeration. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it's sort of a natural uh, – maybe because I'm male, I, I, I go, okay, they're going to overhype uh, what they do. Yeah, you know, I think – I never encourage anybody to lie or exaggerate, but I do encourage professionals to be articulate and metric-driven in their descriptions. So rather saying, I ran a team, let's put, I had a team of five people, we came in under budget, and we were able to deliver this much value to our customers, whatever the amount of value is. And so just making sure that you can articulate business metrics when describing your work – you, you, in essence, did that earlier when I asked you about your Silicon Valley experience. You said I was global. I had a team of 20. I, <laughs> you, you rattled off metrics like you just described. Yeah. You know, I think it just depends on how you think, too. Some people are very math-minded, and I think some people, you know, are used to. And it really depends on how you grew up, too. I mean, I talked to many, many professionals that grew up in environments that they say, don't brag, don't show your neighbor, don't um, – highlight your accomplishments. And so some things we have to learn in a new way in the professional world. Back to the the quote about men being more metric-based and women being more general 
in, in resumes. This has to be learned behavior. At what point does a female learn that? And at what point does a male learn that? I mean, is it on the playground in elementary school where boys are always bragging more than what they actually do? Or, I mean, at what stage do we get into these channels? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, you'll see research all over the board. It can start as early as two, three, four years old and then carry through depending on the types of parents you have, depending on the types of organization, and even what extracurricular activities you do. Uh, So, you know, I think that it can come in all different flavors, but I think across the board, women feel uncomfortable sharing specifics about the work they do. And oftentimes in the professional world, women are often encouraged to do side projects or even some girls I talked to that were doing uh, the Legos in the high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were building the Lego cars, and uh, oftentimes the girls are pushed to do find the pieces or to document the the essay, where I often encourage girls to get in and do the work. Do not be processing POs. Do not be doing the paperwork associated with the engineering project. Get in and do the work. That's almost can you type kind of situation. Well, I think women- Where they're relegated to that kind of- Sometimes, yeah. And I think women are like, well, I'll just help any way I can out of true gender generosity, but oftentimes when you're kind of pushed to do the admin aspects of it, you don't get the hands-on. And I think you have to have that self-esteem and that vision I talked about earlier, like I am going to do the work and you are not going to push me into a supportive role. And I see this in some of the largest companies in the world that women have said, I'm in the engineering department, but I don't really work on the actual product. I'm often doing the paperwork associated with the product. And now after speaking with you and seeing your material, I realized I made some political mistakes by not pushing myself into that circle. And I see this happening in conference rooms. We all go into the conference room, and if there's not enough chairs, I see women sitting in the wall. Like, get at the table. Get at the table. And a lot of the work I do is just giving women permission to do what they already know they can do. They just haven't really talked about it before or had someone say, get at the table. So if I've got a job and I've interviewed uh, a ton of candidates, and it's an engineering job, for example, and I'm down to two candidates of equal quality, one male and one female. I'm going to hire the female because of the diversity factor that the position is predominantly male. I'm going to go the other way. Is that not the case with most places? I think it depends on it depends on the interview structure. It depends on the self-confidence of the person interviewing. It depends on how they've achieved success to date. Very many people, I have a lot of articles around comfort recruiting and hiring what you know and hiring. Who you're uh, comfortable with. Yes. Naturally. Right. How you've achieved success before and what your team looked like before. Oftentimes, people are under the gun of getting things done, and hiring is very challenging and t- very time-consuming when you have deliverables that you know ha- you have to get done. That a lot of times people feel like, well, I don't have time to integrate that person into the team, or I, I-, I don't see exactly what I'm looking for. He seems to be a better fit. There's a lot of dynamics and psychological choices around interviewing. Uh, And I see the organizations that train their people on unconscious bias and create programs that encourage diversity hiring. 
be more successful than just hoping it will happen. What are the top two or three things that you find yourself repeating constantly mm-hmm. to, to women and in, in you work with tech-savvy women, mm-hmm. the women who come to you? What, what are the two or three things that you find yourself repeating time and time again? I think the first one that I think is absolutely instrumental for women is having sponsors. And sponsors are different than mentors. Mentors are often people who just give you advice. And when you're with them, they talk to you, give you some ideas. A sponsor is somebody that leverages their social capital to help you meet your goals. They often are in rooms you're not invited to be in. They often have connections that you may not have. And for women, we do a fantastic job networking at the same level that we're at, but we're not very comfortable networking levels one and two above us. And oftentimes sponsors are at those levels two and three layers above us. And again, you know, women are efficient. They want to get things done, but they don't want to bother people or make it inconvenient. And I did this myself. Like I didn't talk to my boss's boss that often because I didn't want to waste his time or I didn't feel like what I said had to say was as relevant as he needed it to be. And I missed out on opportunities to network two and three layers above. And no one told me I should be. And in fact, sometimes when I did, I got, well, you're just trying to hopscotch above me. Yeah, you know? I don't want people to feel like going around my boss. And, and Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so I didn't make a point of finding sponsors on a regular basis. I was lucky to have some sponsors in my career, but looking back now, I would have made a more diligent um, effort. And so in my second book, Accelerate Your Impact, I have four chapters on how to identify, align, connect with, and find your sponsors based on where you want to make an impact next. And that could be many women want to stay in the role they have, but they want to get on a nonprofit board or they want to launch a product. And so your sponsors are based on where you want to push the ball forward in your own life, in your own career. So that's one. The second thing is apply before you're ready. Women wait way too long. I've done so many um, keynotes where people have said, well, I've been tapped on the shoulder to take this role, but I didn't think I was ready, so I declined it. And to me, you know, when someone's tapping you on the shoulder to to take the role, it often means they see that you're ready. And But oftentimes we want to make sure that we're going to do the best job possible. And so we over-prepare, losing the opportunity to sort of learn and stretch in new ways. And we, in doing so, we don't give ourselves the ability to enhance our self-efficacy. And then third, I think just networking. Women skip lunches. You know, they don't prioritize getting out of the office. They're so busy on their to-do list that, you know, Companies change, things happen, and sometimes they call and say, okay, I need to get another job, but I have no network outside of my team. And so really fostering a network uh, for professional growth that someday you might lean on for professional advancement. So this might be a stretch, but are you using what you learned in your technical career now to apply to what you're doing now, you're writing books and you're mentoring and helping young people uh, advance their careers. Is, are they two different skill sets or are you using your previous skill set in your current position? That's a great question. You know, I think that what I learned in a STEM degree and then in my STEM career is solving problems, identifying opportunities, or identifying obstacles, and figuring out ways to move through those effectively. And so I very much go at it with a numbers mindset. I have over 25 charts. I have over 100 articles. Like I definitely back up my work and find ways for women to capture data that they can make decisions. And when I think about my tech career, it really is about 
getting people to move in a direction you desire, whether you're launching a new product, a new company, you're trying to bring people on board. It's about providing enough information and describing a situation that helps them make a logical decision that's going to advance their business. And so now I'm just advancing people, but using the same methodologies that I learned in college and that have worked in Silicon Valley to position products for you know, billion-dollar companies now. Well, best of luck with your enterprise and also your second book. And again, it's called? Accelerate Your Impact. All right. JJ, thank you very much for spending time with us. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with JJ DiGeronimo, president of Tech Savvy Women, and she's also an award-winning author. We talked about women and careers, especially in the STEM areas. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcasts or review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.